Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today, we are joined by Efranda Cross the Pond, Alessandro Hatami, founder of advisory firm Pacemakers.io, as well as holding senior executive roles at PayPal, Lloyd's Banking Group, PayPoint, and GE Capital. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. Hey. So before we talk about some of the new things that you have got going on, let's back up a little bit. Can you tell our audience a little bit about you, your journey, and what leads to pacemakers? Um, it's it's a long journey. It started almost two decades ago. I I got into financial services uh, with G Capital many moons ago, and uh, those days where Jack Welch was still around, we were talking about destroyyourbusiness.com. And the company realized that um, financial services is actually the ultimate digital good because it's all numbers and bits and bytes that can be easily digitized. So I got involved into that in the, I built G Capital's first European website in the late 90s. I got into um, an incubator accelerator called Protege right after that. And then I joined PayPal as employee 11 in the UK uh, to build their business over here. Um, got into payments in that way. Then I became the CEO of paypoint.net, uh, which was the online payments business in the UK, which about 4,000 customers. And um, after that, after a few things doing, trying to buy what is now a billion dollar company, not succeeding, sadly, uh, I joined Lloyd's Banking Group as the COO of digital banking of the bank, uh, responsible for building all the propositions. And now Lloyd's is possibly the, the biggest digital bank in the UK. Um, not entirely due to me, you know, some others helped also. So let's, let's be modest here. Uh, and um, uh, ultimately, I, I left the, um, Lloyd's in 2015, uh, tail end of 2014, and realized that there was something else to be done with the, with, uh, the industry. So I realized very much that financial services was in need of transformation. I realized that digital was going to be the trigger of that. And I also realized that it requires, it's not an evolutionary thing, but it's a transformational thing. And therefore it requires for organizations that want to really change to look outside themselves, outside of their organization to find a change and to find means of transformation, catalysts, supporters, et cetera, et cetera. So I realized that there was going to be a need for the creation of an organization that would help large companies find the right partner to work with. And I looked around and I thought the best model to, to follow is that of the executive search firms for the headhunters. So I built pacemakers with a, with a bunch of my partners um, to create a situation whereby we could offer large corporates a solution that would help them identify the right partner to build transformation. And we look at the whole of the market. We talk, we bring about everybody, not just the startups. If the answer to your problem is IBM, you ought to know. And you shouldn't just go for a, for a fintech or a startup to do that. And you need to realize, um, and very most important aspect is um, in finding the best partner, the technical capabilities are fundamental, obviously, but also the uh, the soft things matter. So cultural fit is, is one of the biggest determinants in the success of a partnership. So we built um, pacemakers.io to help corporates and larger organizations that already know what they want to do, help the right partner to build the future with. And if the right partner is a big corporate, great. If it's a startup, great. But you need to know all the options available to you. And we hold our clients' hands 
from the beginning of the process all the way to when they've identified and they're working with the company they want to work with. Um, so that's that's kind of our story in um, in, in uh, kind of a, a nutshell. Um, in parallel to all of this, I also wrote a book, which um, I'm quite proud of, together with Helene Panzerino, which is one of the, the most talented people that I know. And I also, so I'm doing non-exec work, so I'm on the board of a bank, you know, executive director of a bank in the UK. And I also do lots of mentoring, and I invest here and there when I can afford it in companies that I trust that I like. So um, I'm having a good time. That's good. Uh, so let's talk about that book a little bit because you had put it together with Helen. Uh, it's called Reinventing Banking and Finance. Could you talk about that a little bit more? It's the principles of the book and the process of putting it together. Co-writing a book is always yeah. an exciting thing. What are, what are you trying to achieve with it? Uh, um, we just wanted to create an understanding in our readers that we are about to enter a new threshold. So to use a bad, a bad, accept, a bad statement, it's a paradigm shift of financial services. We are rethinking how the world operates, and in order to describe it, you have a lot of people going out very bombastically saying that uh, disruption is inevitable. The world has changed. Everything is, and all of that is true. But if you don't give it context, it becomes unrealistic, and people cannot really appreciate it. So we wanted to write a book that would actually demystify some of the um, aspects of this transformation, but at the same time not underplay how dramatic it is. So we thought, okay, what is the best way of doing this? So we put the book together that starts off on with history. So the first chapter is a history chapter. So it tells you about how banking evolved and how the different stages from, from the relationship bank to the industrial bank, to the computer bank, to the digital bank, and how these operate differently. Uh, we then discussed how uh, a bank was created as, as a vehicle for consume, for an individual to be able to achieve a goal. And through the years, it became uh, more and more a store where you bought products. So instead of buying outcomes, you were buying products. And it's this, this a bit kind of bastardized the concept, but considering the technology that was available at the time, this is a really reasonable thing. And today we're about, interestingly, in the evolution of digital bank, the ideal digital bank looks a lot like the medieval bank where the banker and the client would sit across, each, across the table from each other and the banker would be thinking, okay, what does my client need? And the client would be able to achieve or get a product that was exactly what they needed. And there was an element of trust built in. And the trust was mutual understanding of each other, but also the fact that both of them were heavily connected to their communities. And if one led, misled the other, uh, both reputations will be damaged and both would be damaged clients and bankers so that element of trust um was fundamental to the bank of the middle ages which by the way the first bank is an italian bank and i'm proud to say banco di san giorgio in genoa uh, sorry for people who say it was Mont monte dei paschi but uh, monte paschi is 30 years later um so um it's very much that and i think what's happened with uh, with the years is that that kind of watered down and became a, a product sale so we wanted to highlight that. Then we wanted to talk about um, the threats to the existing model. So a funny sort of way, we use the metaphor of Spotify uh, and the music industry to explain how banking tra is transforming and how um, 
Spotify replaced Tower Records and the fact they were selling records, not by selling records on digital platforms like iTunes did, but by selling music and not records, uh, which, which is a bit what, what banking should be doing. They shouldn't be selling mortgages and, and, and loans and, and, and credit cards and things like that. And they should be selling credit lines. They shouldn't be saying different types of payments. They should be saying, I will help you pay in the cheapest possible way and I'll make you find a way of doing it. They shouldn't be selling all kinds of products from savings to investments to to insurance. They should be selling, telling customers, okay, you have a bit of extra money. You want to achieve these goals in the long term. Let me give you some advice with the whole of market perspective of what you need to do with your money. So kind of a, a very much a, hands, a handheld solution where the trust that the bank has created with the customer gets monetized and it results in retention. So we discussed, discussed this thing. Um, then we kind of um, created a neobank, which is the bank that I just described with those three products. And then we talked about the process that the banks go through in changing. And I hypothesized this concept of three stages, which is adapt, evolve, and transform, um, which banks go through. And I think most banks right now have done the adopt stage, uh, the adapt stage, sorry. Um, they are now entering the evolve stage. And I think no bank that we know of has gone to transform stage. So, um, and the analogy of, of Spotify is very apt. So um, the adapt is towerrecords.com, the evolve is iTunes, and the transform is Spotify. So what, was the, what does the Spotify banking look like is one of the questions that I ask in the book. Um, we then said, okay, let's become very pragmatic. And this is where Helen get really involved and she helped us, um, she, she worked together in defining the profiles of different markets and how different parts of the world are operating. But also we thought it'd be interesting in talking about the different, what we call the fintech tribes. So the PayPal tribe. So a lot of PayPal, ex-PayPal people have created lots of fintechs. So the bank of the people uh, tribe, the, the challenger bank tribe, and all these tribes, we describe them as, as groups. They're pan-national, they're not domestic, they're not in one specific geography, but they operate with a mindset that is, that is all their own. And they're all working together to transform financial services. So. By reading this book, jokingly, I tell my friends, just buy this book and any, any dinner party, any question people have about FinTech, you'll have an answer for them. Um, so by the way, that's my plug. Um, uh, and it's, it's also a support, it's just the idea there was trying to make sure that we realize that everything is connected because FinTech is not just a technology place, play, it's not just a financial services place, it's a social society play, it's a historical play. There's a humanities dimension to it. There's an ESG dimension to it. We, we cannot just look at one angle. So this book is trying to be as well-rounded as possible. And I think um, Helen and I did a decent job. I think that's an understatement. I do have your book. I have not finished it, but I, I liked it <laughs> so far. Um, one of the aspects I like about it is you have put together examples and profiles on different regions, right? Because I don't see a lot of books that touch that. A lot of them are very much inward looking, right? Looking, yeah. looking at just our market per se. So take that one step further. How do you see financial services today? And what can we learn about where we're going based on what you've seen in other regions or what you've profiled from other industries? Very interesting question. Thanks for that one. Um, I think I think what we're seeing there's a lot of learning to happen that happens, and it's not all all innovation is not happening in the U.S. or in Western Europe. 
or, or in China, it's happening everywhere. So if you look at, for example, the way WeChat actually brought embedded financial services and then recreated, made us realize how embedded finance could be seamlessly beautiful to deliver value, I think that was really great. If you look at M-Pesa and in Tanzania and Kenya and how a mobile phone was able to replace the entirety of financial service infrastructure. So, so M-Pesa itself uh, is using a technology that was not built for financial services and they are now bigger than all of the banks in, in Tanzania and Kenya. Um, is a fantastic indication that there's very little to there's so much opportunity with a bit of ingenuity to be able to truly transform the world. And I think that is that is one thing that we need to realize. Um, if you look at um, products like PayU, for example, that's gone in Pay, PayU and Paytm, both of them in India, uh, operating in India, and how they're creating a point of sale financing in a country that is, that is dramatically underbanking huge chunks of its population. Uh, it, it's 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 amazing. I mean, what can be done in, in in looking at markets from different perspectives. So we all now have we also have this concept of BNPL. It's common to everybody, but it was a small startup in in Sweden that kicked the whole thing off, right? And now it's it's what everybody seems to be going after. Um, I think all of this is 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 something that we need to realize. We don't live in insulated, isolated countries. Uh, we all can, we're all connected. And I think all the people that keep on telling us, oh, yes, globalization is damaging and so on are wrong because globalization is not something invented 10 years ago. Globalization is something that's been around for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, uh, in the book, we talk about a bit of that too. Um, we are learning from each other. And I think one of the things that it makes financial services exciting today is, uh, is exactly how uh, similarities between different countries are accelerating change for the better and improving the quality of life of people not only in the developing world but everywhere let's dive into that right sound like an optimist if that's if that sounds if it sounds like i'm an optimist it's true i am an optimist in general yeah i mean there's a lot of hope uh in in the book and we could certainly relate to that with what we sort of put together um around technology and banking in in your book you and helen you, you talk about the difference between selling products and services, and you talked a little earlier about sitting across from someone and uh, getting an understanding and, and feeling this connection to the community. But, but in this era, you know, of small little startups like Klarna, <laughs> no longer really small, uh, in the era of the super app and open banking and embedded finance, are we really going to see any sort of return to caring about a person's whole need financially? Because when you when you talk about customers assessing, you know, working with a banking relationship and understanding that there's more than a product, now we're seeing, yeah. you know, the, the toaster they used to give away probably know it was more about a banking need because it's probably going to be selling me something pretty soon. Uh, what what's going yeah. on here? You know, are we ever going to get back to actually thinking about customers, you know, holistically? It's interesting. I think it's fundamental. I think the the banks are slowly realizing that the single biggest assets that they have is the relationship with the customer. In a world where I can, uh, especially with in the in Europe with open banking, I can change my bank in two clicks. Uh, the reason I stay with my bank is because the bank is delivering something better. And five ten years ago, I could fudge that. 
I can say, yes, my loan is the best because I know you better, et cetera. But today, again, two clicks and I know if my if my if the if the credit line that I've been offered is worthwhile or if my credit card is a good price or if I'm getting the right features in my mortgage proposition. Uh, so right now it's becoming more than ever important that the bank retains the relationship with the customer because that is so easily movable. And we're going through a major generational shift in the last few decades, in the next few decades. And all the people that would open a bank account when, when they got their first job and retain and kept that for the rest of their lives are no longer the, the, the leading profile. So if I see my kids and um, even people a bit older, they are not in love with their bank. They're in love with getting what they want, rightfully so. And they're looking for the solution provider that they can trust that delivers value. And in the past, when everybody thought, okay, Bank A and Bank B are the same. There's no point in me changing banks. Now that I have data that Bank A is better than Bank B, I'm not staying with Bank B. I'm going to Bank A. So my relationship with my bank, so the fact that the relationship the bank has with its customer is becoming more important than ever. Okay. Now, if you throw into that the, the arrival of big tech and the, the banking as a service, ideas, and so on and so forth, where the provision of the banking service becomes even more commoditized, the only thing that can save a bank's customer base for a bank is the relationship. And the relationship has to be based on trust and the relationship has to be based on value. Um, so that's what I'm thinking is that, uh, and, and I, I could be wrong, but I, I would say that the trend is that the banks will become more and more entrenched in understanding what makes their customers tick. And they will try more and more to build propositions that are exactly tailored to their customers' needs to retain them. Because what's really valuable is actually the long-term relationship rather than making a bigger of a buck and selling a product today. So if you look at banks uh, five, 10 years ago, they were rewarded for selling the credit card to the customer coming in. So sales would go up if there was a reward put to the, to the, to the salespeople in the, in the bank. If you were, uh, and it wasn't necessarily connected to a, a real need of the customer to buy that product. It was very much connected to the reward that sale that the person in the branch was given. Today, that is meaningless. Uh, rewards to salespeople for trying to sell products in a world where you're self-serving is meaningless. Uh, so what banks are doing, they say, okay, I need to create a product that it will be very difficult for the customer to replicate by going somewhere else. And therefore, super customization, hyper customization will become the norm. That's that's my view, by the way. It's not, I don't have a crystal ball that tells the future, but that's you put all the data together, it's leading to that, I would say. So when it comes to hyper-personalization, right, the first thing we think about is data and what you can use yes. with data and what you can create with it. And inevitably, then the question comes to syntax, who some things, some people think they are better at using data, yeah. and creating products that people can resonate more, that's more useful. And some will think, well, what about the big techs? So, I, I want to know from your perspective, how do you see it play out between all of these different players that are trying to get a piece of the pie, right? The fintechs, the fintechs that are getting bigger that we really should not be calling them startups yeah. anymore. The incumbents, the big techs, yeah. what's going what's gonna to happen? And, and where do you see what role each one of them play? Well, interesting question. Thanks for that. I, I had a session recently with some students from uh, UC Berkeley. 
and I asked him a very simple question. Uh, <laughs> I see Raz, Raz happy. Um, um, they, um, I asked him a very simple question. I said, would you like Facebook to have your bank data? And 95% of them said, absolutely not. Then I said, would you like Facebook to have your bank data and your student loan went down by two percentage points in cost? 85% said, yes, I would. Okay. Then I said, would you like Facebook to have your bank data if your student loan went down by 2% in cost and they sold you marketing on the basis of your bank data? 85% said no. Okay. So the use that the data is, that the use that people make of data will drive the ability for financial services and big tech to be able to use that financial data. Now, that's happening is that certain segments of the population understand the value of their data, but most don't. So what's missing here, okay? So we have consumers, we have financial services organizations, we have big tech, we have one element missing, which is regulation, okay? So what I'm going to see is, I believe I will see, is regulators stepping in in a big way. And what's happening right now is the Europeans are doing that more than anybody else. They just got, Google got fined 2.5 billion for a misuse of data. Uh, they, um, GDPR changed the way that data is shared all over the world. So with GDPR, if you're, if you're European going in any site in any part of the world from Europe, uh, the, the site has to inform you of how your data is being used. So there's a little pop-up that says, are you consenting to this? Now, interestingly, lots of US states are following California, for example, is following this concept. So the idea of my data is my own and it's sacred and it has an, it's a value. Is something that regulators have to impose. What will that lead to? That will lead to an environment where I will have to know the value of my data, okay? And the regulators will protect me from this. So how do you avoid this complexity? Again, the only thing that can avoid this complexity is trust. So that I trust sharing my data with this bank because I know that this bank is trustworthy and I can actually, it's okay for me to share my data so that I can get this, this benefit that I want. Okay, so I think what we'll see is that an emergence of an element who has been lacking in fintech and financial innovation, which is that the regulators and regulators across the globe will step up and become a lot more visible. Similar things are happening in China, but for different reasons. It's not necessarily protection of the consumer, it's other reasons. But even there, there's a crackdown on, on the overwhelming omnipresence of the financial services providers. So I, I think in the next few years, we're going to see a much, much deeper uh, spread of the financial information, uh, much more regulated than before. And customers will need to be informed of how what their data is worth and what is valued. So I think we may see be seeing some interesting developments in that sector and saying, okay, how do we actually inform customers what the value of their data is and how you make, how to make sure to use, use it the best way possible. So exciting days ahead. Well, I, I, I think, or I, I'd like to think that what California is doing with the CCPA would extend into other parts of the country, but I'm, I'm not as optimistic about that, you know, happening uh, very quickly. But, but the idea that you could pull back your data at any point, or you could at least see what they're gathering, and then, you know, get a sense of its worth, I think is going to be very important going forward. So I completely agree with that. And, uh, yeah. I, I don't know if you were talking to the Haskell at UC Berkeley, but, uh, it's always great to, 
uh, interact with my my old alma mater. I think um, between you know we, we've done some discussions with business students um, of late, and it's just great to see what people are thinking, you know, and and what they view about banking. And and you've acted as a mentor at Startup Bootcamp, at Seed Camp, at TechStars uh, in London, and at Kickstart Accelerated in Zurich. Uh, you've invested in some startups, you said, and you've talked to lots of founders, I'm sure, over the years. What, what's, what's kind of the things that you, you work with founders and tell them about them, the space? And, and how do you look at sort of giving back into the industry in this way as a mentor? Uh, you're very kind. I, I don't feel I'm giving back. I'm actually getting much more than I'm giving, getting back a lot more than I'm getting. The reason for that is very simply, I, uh, when you work with us, when you talk with a startup or early stage company, you, you go there and they say they're doing this thing with a financial product or, and you kind of pompously sit down and you say, that's not the way it's done. It should be done this way. Okay. And then they say, why? And then nine times out of 10, I have an answer of why it has to be done that way. At one time when I don't have an answer, that's my wow moment, you know, my aha moment. And it's worth the hours and hours of mentoring to get that situation say, okay, maybe that's broken. Maybe that's a different way of looking at this. And, 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 and that's why I do it. Um, it's it's a very much, I, I think I get more than I give, frankly. Um, what I focus more when I work with fintechs, and, and I usually work with fintechs because it's an industry I understand, is try to help them understand where, what their product could be used for and how to position it in a way that helps them um, uh, benefit from distribution, benefit, improve somebody's uh, life or some organization's existence. And what problems are they solving? Because things, with, if they don't have a real good reason why this proposition works, uh, I think it's, it's, um, it's probably not very long-lived. Long-lived or long-lived? I guess it's long-lived. Um, I never know. Uh, and um, so I think the, the important thing there is I help them think about um, mark, product market fit and product customer fit. And that is fundamentally what my biggest value add is. Um, I'm not a technologist, so I don't, I don't focus on that. But ultimately, one interesting thing that we're seeing with uh, FinTech is that the actual technological solution is becoming less and less important. What's really important is what you do with the technology. Because there's many different ways of cutting of cutting that apple, um, and technology today allows you so many routes. Um, it's how you do it. It's what you do, that not the, not the how. It's the what. So, but then it's one. It's entirely one-sided, uh, Brad. It's it's just uh, I'm doing it for the for me. I, I can't do it more. I, I can't agree more. I. I... I think that every time when you talk to different people, especially um, founders, either because they've been through cer certain circumstances and so they understand yeah. a problem and they see the opportunity to change it for good, um, or people with just a fresh pair of eyes, it's always fascinating and exciting and reminds us why it is important that we do what we do. Um, yeah. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you, so, in the beginning of the call, uh, we had talked about new normal, normal, returning to normal. I am getting a huge blur for everything that's been going on for the past, I don't know, 20 months, 22 months. I'm losing track. What do you think the future holds? What do you get excited for for the next two, three years? 
Oh, yeah. Um, okay. So one immediate outcome of, of the of the COVID crisis was digital extreme digitalization. So people started realizing that they couldn't go to the bank anymore. So people of different ages and different kinds started adopting digital. And I think that became um, normal. So right now the adoption rates across all age groups have have, exp have exploded throughout. Uh, that has led to an acceleration in the way the financial services providers have have transformed. So it's become quite reasonable right now. No, no, nobody gets shocked anymore when banks close branches anymore. Uh, while before COVID, it was every time a branch closed, there was a big, big discussion. Now it's done. So, so the banks now are realizing that they can go digital. What this means is that the market is becoming um, a lot more um, flatter. Uh, and therefore, the fintechs are, be, are going to be seen a lot more as normal going forward. So I think there's going to be a big, um, a big opportunity for smaller for financial services organizations entirely digital to do well. Another aspect is an interesting one. I think it's social, and I think what we're seeing is that we're becoming more and more aware of the impact of society, of how we're all connected with each other, and so on. So that has led to a lot of interesting things. The the, the Me Too movement maybe is is one example of this. But I think the, um, the environment awareness of all of us, and that's going beyond younger people and it's becoming more and more entrenched in others. And all of these things are going to become a financial, a fu a fundamental element in some of the, in the choices that I make in life. And they will become a fundamental element in the choices that I make also in my financial products. So I think neglecting that aspect of it will be something that is, is going to be quite dangerous for a financial services organization to do. Um, then I think the the other element is all the stuff that we talked about. I think this um, there's been a legitimization of a lot of things that we thought were edgy. So the blockchain is now normal. Cryptocurrencies are now normal. Um, people buying NFT art for huge amounts of money. It's it's unusual, but it's still it's falling quickly within the realms of of, of normality. So I think we're going to be seeing an acceleration of a variety of things. Um, I would say identity on the blockchain could be something that we will see. I think storing my data in a third-party environment. I think um, stable coins and central bank issued coins, I think, will become the norm. Suddenly, it becomes a lot easier to, to envisage a way of me paying the money going from A to B through a cryptocurrency that is stable rather than having to go through a correspondent banking mechanism with three different banks, sometimes more than three different banks involved in transferring the money and at cost are a, fr a fraction of it at a time that is a fraction of the time that it takes so i think ultimately what's going what's becoming everything is becoming more um in a way there's an element of logic coming in saying why are we doing it this way when we could do it so much more efficiently doing this other way um so i think we'll see that and also the way we work is going to be very different and the fact that we're having a conference call right now and we feel like we're sitting across the table from each other and you're across the ocean. Okay. Um, uh, just before this, I was speaking, I was in another conference call with somebody in Australia, three o'clock in the morning, they were sitting in the conversation. It was normal. So we're, we're becoming more of our global community. This is becoming, it's becoming more and more normal for us to speak to people across the globe to talk about simple things. Okay. Um, and, and so the conference call does not need preparation anymore. I don't have to put on a tie and, you know, I'm comfortable. So uh, I think the world in a way has changed and it's realized, we're realizing that it's a smaller place and it's a place we need to protect and we, we matter each other, to, we matter, matter to each other and, our, 
and the and this and this uh, and the survival of people far away enables my life to be worthwhile. So, sorry again, I went philosophical, but uh, apologies for that. Uh, I, I love that. I think it's it's a perfect ending actually to to the episode. Um, we might actually use that as part of the show notes. I think I think we should. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's lovely to see you virtually across the pond and hopefully you know we will soon be able to meet more people in person in real life and uh, for the rest of you thank you so much for joining us for another episode of one vision and we'll talk to you all next week <laughs>